<laughs> Hi. Um, yeah, I just want to clarify that. So we're part of a team um, that kind of curates, <laughs> um, edit, edited, and organized Nextwords, and it includes me, um, Amanda, uh, Robert Merritt, who's in the audience right, right there, Woo! Sophie Reef, and Julia Nowak, who's um, there as well. Thank you for raising your hand. Um, yeah, so just a little bit about, about Nextwords. It's kind of the showcase of our work at the end of our two years um, of residence at CalArts. Um, and it kind of ends with a huge show at Red Cat, but the whole aim of Nextwords is to kind of engage with the community by hosting shows and events, um, readings, that happen all across LA. So the next one is actually on the 22nd at Visitors Welcome Center, which is in Koreatown. Um, yeah, thank you guys for being here today and to support the readers today. Um, yeah, so our first reader is Chelsea Dreit. And if you allow me to pull up her bio, just a sec. Great. Sorry about that. Chelsea Dreit is a writer, a statistician, and tricoteuse hailing from Los Angeles. She writes fiction. Her hobbies include resurrecting long-dead literary genres, watching HBO, and discussing the consequences of fictional political systems. She's watched The Empire Strikes Back 847 times, impressive, and has 16 opinions on it, so don't try her. Her favorite Disney movie is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> Welcome, Chelsea. Hello, just making sure that um, I'm loud enough and that you guys can hear me. Um, what I'll be reading is an excerpt from my experimental epic narrative poem, Black Harvest, subtitled May the Trap Be With You. Uh, it has so far borne the working titles of Black Star Wars and Hoodoo Star Wars and acts as a critique, rewrite, and photo negative of the original Star Wars trilogy. It was inspired by a quote from Juno Diaz, who I was privileged to meet in February. Um, the quote goes... Um, Look, without our stories, without the true nature and reality of who we are as people of color, nothing about fanboy or fangirl culture would make sense. What I mean by that is, if it wasn't for race, X-Men doesn't make sense. If it wasn't for the history of breeding humans, human beings in the new world through chattel slavery, Dune doesn't make sense. If it wasn't for the history of colonialism and imperialism, Star Wars doesn't make sense. If it wasn't for the extermination of so many indigenous First Nations, most of what we call science fiction's contact stories what doesn't make sense without us is the secret sauce none of this works and it's about time that we we understood that we are the force that holds the star wars universe together we are the prime directive that makes star trek possible yeah in the green lantern core we are the oath we are all of these things erased and yet without us we are essential so here begins black harvest act one binary sunsets Scene one, a cargo freighter escaping, not quick enough, is where we lay our scene. Our initial players, the crew of the, crew of the doomed transport, as brave as they are frightened, they aim their guns high and they'd rather die than be returned, for whatever is waiting for them out there is better than what they've just escaped. Out of the gloom, Captain Shabin sees him first. By his faceplate, 
even before his famous acrid ghostly breaths, the white angles of a grinning skull, the rumors of which number number many, that he stole it off a Carentish opponent, separated the poor soul's head from its shoulders, dipped it in tar, and collected the bones, eaten clean by maggots, to wear as a warning to the next one, adorns his face, hidden and unseen. They don't know from where he comes. They don't know what color he is. They only know that he is death, and he has come for them. A princess, garbed in gold and colorful headscarf, pulled over her face and hair as she sends a distress signal, a plea, a command, whatever works. She puts her trust in a machine, one that knows the stars, one that can act beneath suspicion. Used to see them a lot in the Commonwealth, where where officers of every stripe had one, sending genteel messages for tea parties to send the regards, all things routine and minute. She smiles, one corner all the way on Algique where her, with her queenly mother and consort father, and one corner on the ship where she is sure to be captured. A bittersweet sort of smile. If only the, cobs of the, only the cogs of the Commonwealth knew how easily their tools could be used for rebellion. She sends her missive, turns her chin up, bitter, angry, defiant. She puts on her face, as, she will, as you will. The face every creature in the rebellion remembers. The face the commonwealth loathes. The face of justice. The face of freedom. She'll be queen one day. Though to her adversaries, she'll only be queen of savages on beautiful fertile lands. They're all too stupid to deserve or to rule independently. That makes no matter. She'll be queen, and that means something. Even to his gracious majesty, the one they call Hauptmann Baba. The one with the ill-gotten skull on his face. Her mother was the example. Taye knows what being queen means from, being, from her lady mother. Queens are brave. Queens are strong. Queens don't know compromise. She's learned her lessons well. That's how she presents herself to Houtman's skull face, chief enforcer of the commonwealth that terrorizes the known and unknown worlds. Though she won't give in. She's not prepared to. This is what most don't know. Houtman Baba... His gracious majesty, chief enforcer, etc., etc., lived a very different life in his youth. For Houtman Baba had a, had a name and a purpose that was taken from him, and he had to accept a new one to survive. We all do what we can to survive. Scene 2. The sterile sur- surroundings of the big boy, the good king's flying death from above. The admiral is saying something, pretending to be menacing. Houtman Baba doesn't pay attention. The princess won't speak, won't even admit to being part of this shameful, abominable, unpatriotic, all the little gods, when will he stop, uprising. She stands by her story and dares all assembled, crew members, the admiral, Houtman Baba himself, and their recording devices to contradict it. Strange to see such nobility from an equatorial world that lies under their dominion and subsequent jurisdiction. He, Houtman Baba, didn't think that. His master did. Houtman Baba has no right to judge, considering what he used to be, considering what master rescued him from. Master is always in his head, chose his new face, chose his name, chose his purpose. It feels so freeing, you know, to give in to someone else. That's what he tells himself. That's how it must be. Did he think that, about giving in? Or did he remember it? Anyway, the princess. 
Lady Taye of the clan Adadayo, hailing from the green jewel lands, heir to the hereditary throne of Algique. The angles and delicate bones of her face, schooled into innocence and blankness, don't impress the admiral. Outman Baba doesn't want to admit that it does impress him. Her hair, hidden beneath a thin layer of gauze and silk, is twisted into the ceremonial shapes of the nobility on Algique, and the texture of her hair allows the death-defying styles to sit neatly on her head. She's sent to the re-education sector to be made to talk. She keeps her challenging. She keeps her challenging me in the the whole way. Houtman Baba doesn't want to, doesn't try to, can't help but something of the princess of the little lady Taye. Well, it reminds him. It recalls, and he doesn't dare think this in master's hearing. But no, that woman is dead, years dead, and the dead don't matter. Makes the job easier. Everything easier. A slaughtered rebel, an escaping provocateur, a child sobbing for his mother, it's all the same. But still. Scene three. On a faraway planet, much removed from the little drama playing out between empire and resistance, a planet called Whisper where the sands swirl and fly and the desert is silent and mysterious in its beauty, lives Taiwo. He lives in the house of his aunt and uncle, but where is the name of his father, his real father? Igwe, Sky. He looks up at the bright blue dome above him and wonders, quietly, subtly, only to himself. This is when he's alone. With his aunt and uncle, and only with them, he peppers them with questions about his real mother, his real father, and it should be insulting to the people who raised him from birth. But auntie is kind, and uncle is gruff, but fair. Uncle is spare, spare with details. It frustrates Taiwo. Auntie is better, answers to the best of her ability. She agrees with Uncle's assessment that Father was a genius with machines, just like Taiwo is now. But Auntie, who spent more time with Mother than Uncle did, gives the few small but precious details about her. That she was kind. That she was finely dressed. That Auntie and Uncle's world and their ways were strange to her. And she came from a world where water is free for anyone, a planet near the center of the known galaxy, a wealthy and important world that is crucial to Taiwo. He shares his father's name and knowledge of fixing gliders and translator models, but his mother was rich and beautiful and came from a world where slavery is unknown to her. And, this is possibly even more crucial, Taiwo's parents were extremely in love. Auntie and uncle both agree on that front. Auntie even saw mother hold father, and he was crying. Father was crying. For a long time, auntie and uncle never say why father cried, always said, wait till you're bigger. But the day Taiwo turned 17 cycles, a man's age, he asked again, and auntie said, your your father's mother, uncle's stepmother, she died. Your father found her, it was the outer tribes. Taiwo always avoided the outer tribes, but now he resents them ever so little. Auntie probably because he could not lie to her nephew, now a man in many eyes, gave a little bit more. Mother touched father's face with her soft hands that never knew work and wiped away the tears on father's face. She kissed him, first on the nose, then on his left cheek, his right cheek, and stood up on her tiptoes to kiss his forehead, and they embraced, father collapsing into mother, as if exhausted. Auntie, who had been watching from their little hut,
Newt kept quiet. She had seen a very private moment, and it was best she slipped away. Taiwo, years in the future, both parents dead, wishes auntie had stayed, had watched longer. Taiwo dreams about them, a faceless woman in fine blue silk, and a tall man looking like him, but fiercer and stronger and older, holding each other with love, holding him with love. He doesn't share this with anyone else. But sometimes, when he wakes up in the morning and there's work to be done, he sees spots of tears drying on his pil- pillow. That, he thinks, is all that's left of them. Scene 4 Meanwhile, Oye doesn't like the look of this. Not at all. Uma only beeps in response. Not helpful. Oye has been on this dratted sand planet for several days, longer because of the twin suns. Days last 34 imperial hours, and Uma keeps blathering about his mission and how he knows where to go, which is so annoying and so impossible that Oye wishes he, had, he was never programmed to understand beep speak. Uma keeps going on and on, deeper into the sand. Oye knows it's a bad idea, but he doesn't want to be alone, so he goes along with him, complaining the whole way. They get captured by scavengers. Oye knew that would happen. Scene 5. It's collection day on Whisper. Uncle never misses it. They barter with tribes far and wide, trying to find something worthwhile amid the heap of collectibles scavenged by traders. Taiwo, still smarting from the knowledge of his paternal grandmother's death at the hands of the outer tribes, hates it. It happens twice a cycle, and Taiwo gets dragged into the hot sun, eyes burning from the grit of the whipped-up sands, and looks over useless junk that might help drain precious water from deep within the soil. Uncle, Uncle calls out from the other side of the giant dune dweller, trading coin for parts. Taiwo, keep steady. They have machines. They work, too. Taiwo ducks his face so Uncle doesn't see him roll his eyes. Taiwo doesn't want to admit it. Because to admit it is to put on airs. And putting on airs on Whisper, where gang lords and criminal royalty abound, is to hang a noose around your neck. But Taiwo was born of, wealth, born of a wealthy woman who loved her husband, who chose him for love. And the fact that Taiwo has to barter with murders, well, it stings. His mother is dead, and his aunt, his aunt and uncle are all he has left. But it still stings. Anyway... Taiwo dutifully looks at the machines his uncle points out. One is a translator model. This one's quick to remind them, in a strident voice and an inner-worlder accent, of this fact. Taiwo's already sick of him. The other is a nondescript cube model, only knows beep speak, which Taiwo taught himself to understand. They're selling for a good, if a bit steep, price. Taiwo and his uncle walk away with them, and the beeper, quite literally, falls apart. Uncle berates the tribert furiously, asking him who exactly is he trying to kid here. Taiwo ignores the argument for the most part. Look here, I'm no sad sack ignorant tra- charity case. I have you know I'm six generations removed from slavery, I know of which I speak. But his eyes catch on to a similar cube, beeping slowly and quiet- quietly to itself. It looks like the type that pilots use to calculate parameters and cover and defensive tactics. Taiwo has always wanted to fly, partly so he can leave, but also partly because it all seems so glamorous, so refined. A pilot for the Commonwealth with a uniform and a generous salary, catching everyone's eye with jealousy, awe, and respect. Taiwo could get used to that. 
He touches the cube's eye dome, and it wakes up, its eye sensor looking him over. He boops just one sentence in, in beep speak. Please, I need the man they call Mifuni. Well, that settles it. Taiwo hollers at his uncle to look at this machine, and uncle, the purple in his face lightening to a mere burnt red, says hotly that he'll take the other model for a discount. The Triber accepts. Taiwo, however, has a plan, and a mystery to solve. Of all the cube models in all the worlds of all times, what would this one have to do with Daichi Mifuni, reclusive neighbor, rumored witch doctor, and noted village, wi- and noted village weirdo? The cube model, who turns out to be named Uma, beeps happily at his side. And that's it for now. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for acknowledging through your work the role that black and brown people have had to play in helping to originate a genre. It's pretty cool. Um, I just want to kind of emphasize again that the reading series ends on the 7th of May at Redcat, and it would be great to see everyone here there at Redcat. It's at 4 p.m. Um, also, there's an anthology that's a collection of all of our work um, that will be available quite soon. So if you're interested in ordering it, please um, contact one of us, um, either me or Sophie, Julia or Rob, um, sitting across there. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so up next we have Jesse Garrett Vanden Coy. Um, <laughs> Jesse Garrett Vanden Coy is a composer, graphic designer, computer technician, um, also a student council president, um, manager of the radio station, etc., etc., at Kalotsk. Kind of a long list of amazing things. Um, and author of Faye, the book of Phelan. The World is Among Us, The Midnight Orchestra, Faye, The Book of Keen, and Trout Are Selfish, Short Fictions and Transitions. Thank you, Jesse. Welcome up. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. Uh, and thank you, Chelsea. It was phenomenal. Just, like, so um, So this is, uh, as Amanda mentioned, my thesis is a collection of short stories called Trout Are Selfish which is true, uh, short fictions and transitions. Um, and this story is called The Garden in Toko Valley. So. The board was upset, but the board was also full of dying old men, and the world was full of dying young men. I was hopeful, but not convinced, that the meeting I was about to leave the country for would save my business. Certainly the board saw it as some Hail Mary plea to an investor who would probably back out like all the others. But I was going to be staying at the later resort in Toko Valley, which made my staff a little jealous. If the business was about to implode, at least I would get a spa pass out of it. Smog filled my lungs as I stepped from the car, my lungs heavy the whole way into the main clinic. My assistant looked up from her desk and hailed me over. Mr. Vault, I have your schedule cleared out for the next four days. Here are your boarding passes. Also, Mr. Orson is waiting for you in your office. I told her to tell Orson that he was in charge until I got back. I tucked the boarding passes in my coat, eyeing my closed office door where Orson would surely be ready to ambush me. He really wanted to talk to you. Orson was my vice president and CFO, as well as my best friend. It didn't matter either way. There wasn't anything to discuss until the end of the trip. All business would be pointless until I secured the institutional support of one Dr. Rebecca Abra. I held my breath and left the clinic, glancing at the aluminum letters spelling out my name on the building and wondered if they would still be there when I returned. 
I went home and smoked a cigarette, which was probably insensitive, all things considered, but I figured if I had a plastic lung, I may as well hit it hard. I was going to turn on the news, but the weather was on. The weather was always on. The weather was the news, and when it wasn't, sickness was, and then they'd attribute it to the weather. And on and on it went, hours of nighttime newscasters hopelessly and frantically trying to pick out some shred of originality around the subject, never really letting the world come to terms with the situation. Orson left a voicemail. Vault, you asshole, call me back. What, you think because we're a month from shutting down there isn't any work to do? Well, let me tell you, I could hear Stephanie trying to wrench the phone out of his hands, Orson's muffled shouting. They're taking a fucking vacation in the middle. Back off, I'm getting a cold breath down my neck from the board and a hot stick up my ass from the staff. Now I'm supposed to tell them that the goddamn CEO is... I closed the phone and slipped it into my pocket. I packed a single canvas duffel bag and a few shirts, socks, underwear, and the two condoms that remained in the inside pocket for my last trip to Romania, which was not a business trip for clarification. I left my computer, my business cards, and everything in my wallet besides what I would need to board a plane. My first two nights visiting the later resort had been wholly uneventful. I spent most of the first in my hotel room reading up on Dr. Rebecca Abra, the woman I was to meet with on the fourth day, and her research on organ transplants. I had visited the bar, a sunk-in lounge at the center of a massive indoor pavilion, and had little to drink in comparison to the other visitors, along with a small meal. The bartender was a young man with dark hair, younger than me, seemed to enjoy his job, and he told me so. Pays the bills, and I get to spend my afternoons talking to people so rich they speak like they're from another planet. Can't beat that, he said. He asked me what I did for a living. I told him I worked in the technology industry, which was true. You enjoy it? I told him that I did, more out of manners than out of truth. The later resort was notorious for the crowd it attracted. Politicians, heads of state, doctors, princes, you know, that sort. Then there was me, the kind of person who was invited and had everything paid for. I was not a rich man. Mild success had come my way and respect in my field, but not much material wealth, not of this sort. The striking thing about the people I saw there was the health. People moved briskly, breathed without difficulty, and seemed ageless. Money buys health too, I suppose. I pulled out my inhaler with a bit of shame and waited until arriving in my room to take any medication, antibiotics for one cause, hormones for another. I walked around the sides of the pavilion where curving corridors of aluminum pillars and potted plants and skylights gave the impression of being both indoors and out. Not many guests I passed were stopping to look at the scenery, which was perhaps an indication of success of the designer. It was not a place to bask in architecture, though it was an architectural marvel as far as I was concerned. It was a place for business, to be conducted in absolute comfort. I wouldn't call it a place of excess, but as I took in the structure and details of the resort, I became vividly aware of how poor I was, at least in this context. Like a tourist pretending to inhabit a space they have no business in, mostly in the eyes of those that do. I wondered if Dr. Abra was the kind of person who had business conducted here often, if she was the type who belonged at a place like this. I knew how to interact with the super-rich. My former investors often were, though I doubt any of them have been to the later resort. I kept telling myself that it was all for the best, that the next phase in my career was about to begin. I was confident in this collaboration. Three men were huddled, in a, were huddled together in a lobby when I made my way back. They stood close, facing each other, and each was talking on their cell phones. It reminded me of how penguins huddle together, them in their tieless dark suits and white-collared shirts. It made me laugh a little until one of the men looked up at me and I averted my eyes, trying to conceal the grin on my face. To my dismay, he tapped his phone, inserted it into his breast pocket, and began walking toward me. The man had dark sunglasses. Maybe I wasn't paying much attention. He said my name, which surprised me, 
Even if he had worked for Dr. Abra and was waiting for me, I hadn't introduced myself to anyone other than the bartender. And then I remembered that photos were easy to come by these days. My face was attached to a few engineering and medical articles on the web, and that's just the easy way, the free way. I expected the man to tell me that Dr. Abra had canceled our meeting, which upset my stomach a little, that she had decided my services weren't needed, my invitation to collaborate no longer of value, that I would have to settle for working with the second best expert on organ transplants. I have considered walking away before he could tell me and show up at Abra's door anyway. I just needed a chance to talk to her, to sell myself. People usually liked me when they got to know me, if I was perhaps underwhelming on paper. Of course... I wasn't underwhelming on paper. I was as much of an expert as she, in some ways. You're the printer, the man said. I nodded. I observed him staring at the shape of my slacks, then at my chest, then back down. I assured him that, yes, it was real. He had almost gesturally removed his phone from his jacket, tapped it and put it to his ear, then walked off to join the Penguin cell phone huddle for another 20 seconds or so before they all simultaneously ended their calls and walked out of the resort together. Yeah, they come in from time to time, the bartender told me that evening. They might work for Rebecca Abra. She's on the board of the resort. I think they check in for her. Or maybe they just come to look intimidating. They're around more often when Mr. Alice comes to visit. He built the place. They might work for him. They might not work for anybody. Everyone works for somebody, I thought. I told him about the exchange earlier that day. And he laughed when I mentioned that they looked like penguins. He had a nice laugh, and I could tell he knew exactly what I was talking about. So you're a printer? He asked, pulling, putting a tall drink in front of me that I had not ordered, but enjoyed and would not pay for that night. Thought you said you worked in technology. I explained that I was an engineer, that my name was James Zoe Vault, and that my friends and my research team called me Zoe out of habit, and that my team worked on 3D printing, that we printed organs used as prosthetics for patients and those looking to extend their lifespans, ones who could afford a heart that would never stop beating or an inner ear that would never deteriorate. Told him we were weeks, for shutting, weeks from shutting down. Sounds like you're making mechanical people, like in the movies, but I guess these days we need all the help we can get. Not that any of that's so far-fetched now. He poured me another drink and refused to take my tip when I offered it. Do a lot of people get behind that, the whole fake organ thing, I mean? I shrugged. It was true that for every adopter of synthetic organs, there was another just as adverse to an inorganic body. And while I'm against stereotypes, the fact was that the vast majority of these folks were closed-minded religious bigots who would reject a fake organ that would save their lives just as quickly as they would reject a fake man who affected their lives in no way, but now we're getting personal. So they would go to people like Rebecca Abra and get a real kidney, one that would wither and die just as fast as the last if you had the privilege of finding one. But there are no wait lists for donors where you're in the circles of doctors, uh, people like Dr. Abra, or for that matter, anyone who does business at the later resort. She was an ally I needed to have, someone revered in the medical community, a household name if you follow modern medicine or just watch the news. I had seen her in, her, in an interview once when I was in Berlin trying to get a small clinic off the ground for vin victims of terrorist bombings in the area who had lost limbs or motor skills. She spoke with charisma and charm and authority, the inflections of her speech carrying the host and audience with her on a conversational campaign. The public adored her. It wasn't just tabloids and medical community newsletters that confirmed this. It was the blogs and chatter going on about the web internationally. She had advocated for several world governments to make organ donor registration mandatory. Nobody was quite sure how she did it, but when I saw her speak, it was clear that she knew how to sell an opinion, probably just as well as she knew how to transplant a brain, which she had done. The world's first successful brain transplant had put her into the public eye. Granted, it had only been a portion of the brain, 
but it was astounding all the same. The recipient did not neglect the partial brain and in fact caused no noticeable changes to the patient besides a temporary loss of motor skills that were corrected after about 18 months of physical therapy. I figured if she could get behind what I had to offer, she could convince anybody. I would be willing to sell her everything if she wanted. It wasn't really about the money. It was a little. But it was more about a young lifetime of work being rejected time and again. It was about the stigma of synthesis, of the artificial, the changed. I was a perfect example of something altered in the eyes of much of the world. Humankind has come so far, and yet we're still unable to uproot ourselves from the foundational fear of something different than ourselves. So many clinics and hospitals have refused to subscribe to our prosthetics, fewer still to our organs. Every deal at the last minute was always shut down. Investors would pull out just before term sheets were signed. Medical journals would remove stories from their scheduled print, even after they'd already been written. I couldn't understand why. Didn't people want to get better? To adapt to a changing climate? To rid themselves of pain and suffering? To become abled where they had once been disabled? The more we were rejected, the more we were known for rejection. I felt shunned from the medical community. But Abra was my chance. The bartender poured me a final drink and told me his name was Daniel, and I insisted he took the tip I offered, and he did at last, then casually slipped the bill into the front of his pants without breaking eye contact with me. We had sex that night. It had been a while since I'd been with a man, and it was in some ways my first time. In other ways, it wasn't. The morning, in the morning, I dressed in my black suit, and when deciding between a black shirt or a white, I smiled and chose the black. It was, after all, the proverbial funeral of my business, after all. Mostly, I didn't want to look like a penguin. I packed my suitcase and kissed Daniel, who was still in bed, before leaving the hotel suite. I left my key card on the table the night before in case Daniel wanted to use the suite, which was booked out for one more night than I anticipated staying. My assistant does that when she books my trips, just in case. But he told me he doesn't stay in the suites unless he has someone to stay with, which he usually does. I half expected him to tell me that the resort pays him to do these sorts of things with the guests, and I think he half expected me to ask so he could tell me it was true. He told me to have a safe trip, and good luck at my meeting, and goodbye, using my preferred name, as we had discussed uh, after I was sufficiently drunk, but before we had taken the elevator up to my suite the night before. I told him the key card was also a pass for the spa, and he smiled and nodded and waved me away. The car was waiting for me out front. The penguin man drove the car out of the resort and down the private road leading to Toko Valley, where Abra's campus and research facility was located. I hadn't showered, which I regretted because there was a discomfort in my groin. The leather seats of the car were cold, which was the only thing helping me feel clean. The road wound through hills, and nothing but green foliage could be seen on both sides. The trees were blooming earlier and earlier every year. After 20 minutes on the road, the penguin man made a sound that wasn't a word, but which indicated we were about to arrive. One final curve in the road in Abra's Institute was in view, a circular, multi-level complex of metal and glass, reaching back to a two-decade-old design aesthetic I still found appeasing, appealing. The complex was like a huge ring surrounding a central courtyard the size of a stadium. The car entered a tunnel lit by red LEDs at regular intervals and came out seemingly too soon right at the entrance of the campus, an open lot with metal arches towering overhead. I was let out and asked to go in and speak to a receptionist. I did so and was then escorted from one lobby to the next over the course of 30 minutes, ascending a number of floors each time. The art that hung on the walls in each lobby was both refreshing and distracting, all multicolored pastels lit from behind and sitting flush with aluminum walls. Once I was on the third floor, I was ushered by a woman in a lab coat who did not introduce herself but offered me a small bottle of water, which I accepted, from which, from within I could understand the structure of the building more clearly. Six rings 
Circular corridors cascaded out from an open center of the campus and nine floors stacked atop them. There were 54 discrete buildings connected by enclosed exterior bridges. For every floor we climbed, we also drew two layers closer to the center of the campus. The higher and deeper we went, the fewer windows were present and there was more backlit art on the walls, more tracks of lighting on the floors. We arrived at the top floor of the innermost ring, and I had expected to see windows overlooking the central courtyard of the facility, but there were none. Only a panel of frosted glass at the top of the wall, which ran around the circular corridor and let in some natural light. The curvature of the hall was more noticeable here in the inner circle. At the end of the hall was Dr. Abra's office. Glass French doors let a blinding amount of daylight into the otherwise dim hallway. The woman in the lab coat opened the door for me, and I entered. Dr. Abra was just as I remembered her from the television interviews. She really does look just the same. She sat at a U-shaped glass desk. I realized instantly why the office was so bright. The ceiling was entirely made of glass, though the wall I knew to be overlooking the center of the complex was metal and windowless. It seemed strange to me that someone who liked natural light this much would keep the center ring of her complex so dark. Mr. Vault, welcome in. Please have a seat. I did as I was told and shook hands with Rebecca Abra. I expressed my gratitude for, accept, for her accepting my request to meet and offer my proposal. She raised a hand to stop me from going further. The answer is no, she said. I have no intention of promoting your printed organs. My chest deflated, and I felt every detail of the chair I sat in, the arch in the armrests and my quivering arms upon them. My heart beat in my temples, and the tenderness in my groin highlighted all the discomfort that cautious confidence had been concealing. Remaining professional, I asked her why she would have me come all this way if she did not want to form a partnership. The reason is that I do want to form a partnership, just not the one you're intending. Listen, Mr. Vault, very carefully to me. This meeting constitutes two things, a request and a demand. I asked what the demand was. I want you to stop distributing your printed organs. When she saw the expression that surely came over my face, she smiled and continued, It's nothing personal. I just can't have you doing it anymore. You've been setting up facilities all over the world and soliciting to hospitals and clinics, and rather than continuing to have my associates kill your deals and buy up your property, I thought it best to just talk to you personally. I was dumbfounded. Six years of trying to build an infrastructure in which my organs could be accessible and affordable to health care providers, governments, private hospitals, and clinics had ended in a fruitless hemorrhaging of resources. Dr. Abra, I said, mouth dry. I took a sip of water. I don't understand. I know you came here seeking my help as a last resort for your effort, and I'm sorry to have to be the one both denying your request and funding your collapse simultaneously, but I think we can come to an agreement. With all due respect, doctor, tens of thousands of people die because of the lack of compatible organs for transplant. That's risen in the last eight years by over 300%. The way people take care of their bodies is different than it used to be. The climate alone makes up... I stopped when her eyes told me the information was irrelevant. I wasn't telling her anything she didn't already know. I attempted a different approach. Now, hear me out, I said, shifting tone. You've made leaps and bounds with advocating for mandatory organ donor registration, but that just doesn't cut it. Those organs may fail anyway. There's a huge spread of infectious disease because of the escalated need for transplants. Pretty soon there won't be anything left. I'm trying to create a solution here. I understand, Mr. Vault. But let me address a few things you've said. First of all, no country on earth has mandatory organ donor registration. Not one. I hesitated. 
it was impossible. There had been a massive export of donated organs from six countries. It had resulted in a booming economy for those nations and allowed for the rest of the world to keep up with the deterioration of health internationally. I had personally been to Germany where people told me about how they were forced to register as organ donors. Aber dismissively rubbed the corner of her eye. They filled out the paperwork, yes, but we don't use those organs. As you say, there are too many risks, the spread of infectious disease being the least of them. We get the organs here, you see. The countries that have in instituted those policies don't actually use donations from their dead citizens. It just accounts for the boom in available organs and the vast reduction of those on waitlist for donors. It allows the public to believe that their leaders are supporting a worldwide effort, and it costs them very little to maintain that illusion. We do a good thing here, Mr. Vault, Dr. Abra said as sweetly as she did deliberately. And you need to stop trying to solve problems that don't exist. I stood so quickly that the chair I sat in fell backward. How can you possibly say there isn't a problem? She frowned then. Don't get so upset, Mr. Vault. I'm not your enemy here. Not my enemy. You've gone out of your way to wreck every effort I've made for the better half of my career. You do good work too, Mr. Vault. I watched you when you first came on the scene. It's great what you do for people. In fact... She broke off and stood from her chair, then began to unbutton her blouse. I was about to object, but then I noticed the thick and familiar scar that ran down the center of her chest, one that I had seen on numerous patients. A heart that never stops beating, she said, sighing almost ironically. Remarkable, Mr. Vault. She buttoned her blouse back up. You see, I'm a customer, a grateful one, and there will be others. There are those looking to live longer, to move better, to transition more effectively, which is your specialty, I believe. That is how I wish to partner with you. My associates would pay handsomely for that kind of service. They aren't interested in cheap organs for diabetics or prosthetics for soldiers. They want things you create that will give them immortality. Let me deal with the weak and the ill. For the first time, I looked down at her desk. There was an empty picture frame and blank sheets of paper along with an unmarked calendar. A couple of leather books had been strategically placed on the desk for decoration only. This wasn't her office. It was just some pleasant meeting room, a place to feel comfortable with its natural light and sensible decor. It made my stomach turn. I took another sip of water, lifted the chair, and placed it back in its rightful place. You can't possibly think you can handle all the need that will come up over the next few years, can you? One disease... Once disease, once disease spreads enough, there simply won't be enough healthy people left. I'm sure you've seen the projections. The demand will rise faster than any doctor can account for. The entire medical community is in a state of panic. Opera walked around from her desk and touched my shoulder. The supply is here, Mr. Vault. That's why we created the demand. Created? I think I've proven I'm not against synthetics. Come with me. I want to show you something. In good faith. And to ease your concerns. What's that? She smiled. I want to show you my garden. We walked along the hall of the inner ring of the elevator. Abra's silence was that of emanating smugness, feeding off my confusion. Her body upright and flowing like a restaurant host preparing to show you to your table. Performative. She placed her finger on a glass button and held it in place until a blue light flashed and went out. Then the elevator began to move. Blue lights came through the vertical separation of the elevator doors, indicating every passing floor. I counted each one until we reached the ground level, and an amber light and an amber-green light drew up the gap and filled the elevator as the doors opened. I blinked once and saw a greenhouse, 
The sunlight filtered and reflected along colored glass walls that made up the interior of the open space at the center of the complex. Greenery covered the ground, huge leaves six to eight feet tall like an ant's view of a box garden. I blinked a second time and focused my eyes in the light pouring down from above, realizing for the first time that the building was more of a hollow oval rather than a circle, and saw that there were not only leaves, not only stems, There were also tubes of pale green attached to lanky stalks of the same color. Each looked like a cross between a tree and a wilting flower, with limbs hanging passively at the sides of the stalks. I blinked a third time. Now with only a few seconds passed, and I saw the stalks were torsos, and the limbs were human limbs, and the plants were not plants, but people. Aisles and rows separated the crops, made up of three or four elongated sexless humans clustered together. Abra's hand touched my back, and she led me forward down the central aisle. The crops had no faces, though some had eyes, and all of them had narrow heads. They were all genderless at first, but as we went deeper, I began to notice more feminine crops with the illusion of hips and curved bellies. For ovaries and eggs, Abra said, and perhaps soon for surrogate gestation. Every humanoid plant was legless. The thighs joined together where the knees would have been and extended into round metal plates bolted to the ground. I felt knots in my stomach, and I turned to survey the garden once we reached its center. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of these human plants, so similar, but with each cluster slightly different. I turned in circles, alternating, looking at the ground, the walls of the Institute, and the sky above. Shh. Listen carefully, Mr. Vault. I stopped spinning and closed my eyes. To my left, I heard a soft, rhythmic sound, like fingers tapping on tables strewn about a room. I couldn't pinpoint the source or imagine what it could have been, only that it reminded me of ticking clocks, but deeper. I was brought back to one of my first research labs, where a white, sterile room had fell silent the moment we assembled the last printed parts of the first synthetic heart. Orson had been there with me. We had held hands in our breaths as as the heart was attached to a pump and power. Gray fluid was poured into it in a slight jolt of electricity followed by a steady current of power which charged it. When it began to beat on its own, we all cheered. The center is where we harvest the hearts, Abra said. They require, most, they require the most direct sunlight. But here, this is what I really wanted to show you. At the foot of the crop... As the foot of every crop with a beating heart, a pulsating tube extended into a circular cobblestone dais where tall green leaves concealed the smallest plant in the garden. Aubrey didn't have to tell me what was in there. I knew, but I still pulled the leaves aside and looked at the small humanoid plant. Dimples and crevices gave it the features of a face and a head. Unlike the torso, was unlike, and the head, unlike the others, was full and round with the limbs and torso frail and shriveled. We only need one, Aubrey said. She produces one brain every 14 months. Even you can't print a human brain, Mr. Vault. So you understand why I need you to stop and focus on creating new and long-lasting organs for my associates. Leave the organics to me, and I will heal the sick and the poor. I have thousands, Mr. Vault, in every blood type. Enough blood to fill a lake, enough eyes to count the stars, enough hearts to power an army. She smiled wide. I asked her how long they lasted, and she told me that the kidneys would last for up to three years, the hearts for up to six if they come from the strong harvest. Eyes deteriorate after 18 months and require replacement, but they would only take a few weeks to grow. Custom bases would need to be made for patients so they could mount new eyes regularly without invasive surgery that I would be needed to design and print such custom mounts. I asked her how long she'd been using them, and she told me a date. The first one succeeded. 
The pilot plant simply produced blood, and blood was her primary source of income for many years, which helped fund her research. I asked her who knew about it, and she told me her small surgical team and her most generous investor, one Mr. Alice, the owner of the later resort, the owner of many things, she elaborated. His special, path, his special patch was on the southeast side of the garden. I didn't ask to see it, but she showed me anyway. She showed me the little, she showed me the pale little bodies of children, the only plants that did not look like plants. The tube that came out from the metal bases on the ground connected to their navel like umbilical cords. They had eyelashes and lips, fingernails and feet, and they had genitals. And they all looked like children between eight and twelve, all of them pale. When Mr. Alice has them harvested, she explained, they get a little more color. It happens when they begin to eat normal food. He's a good man, Mr. Alice. He's the reason you're here, after all. I asked why, not with my mouth, which was dry and quivering, but with my eyes. And she told me that he needed modifications to his body, that I would be the one to do it, and I would be receiving instructions when I arrived back at the later resort, and that I would be paid handsomely, and that I would go on to make more things, and that I would spend the rest of my life in luxury, and that I would spend the rest of my life looking over my shoulder if I ever thought of betraying his trust. One commission from Mr. Alice, Abra said, hailing me back to the elevator is worth the wealth described of only in fantasy stories. I drank the glass of water that I was offered upon my return to the later resort, trying to subdue the nausea, thinking about things that were plain in an attempt to cleanse my mental palate, but I kept thinking of having sex with Daniel in my hotel room the night before, and how disgusting I found it presently, the organicism of it. I supposed I would never look at people the same way again, sexually or otherwise. I often found myself in sexual situations on these trips, but... I also often found myself having a glass of water, or tipping a doorman, or riding in a car, or getting surprised by a response, and then the sexual encounter makes sense, because it's as simple, repetitive, and mundane as the glass of water. But the sex made me want to vomit. Everything made me want to vomit. Everything. As the cars passed by, picking up and dropping off the patrons of the later resort, I thought about laying down in front of the tires of one of the limousines and letting it crush my head so that neither my team nor Dr. Abras would be able to rescue me. The doors of the limo I had been eyeing opened up and three men stepped out, wearing identical suits. They were the penguin men, and they no longer amused me. They shuffled over to me, remaining in close proximity to one another. I was handed a file folder that I did not open. Exact measurements for the request and a complete health history of Mr. Alice. There is also a note from Dr. Abra. Your car will depart when you're ready. I looked over at the white sedan that had just pulled up. A small girl with light blonde hair and the palest skin I had ever seen was ushered in. Another one of the penguins climbed in on the other side and drove the car away. I nodded and got into the limo. And when it was apparent that we traveled to the same destination as the sedan with the pale little plant girl inside, I was unsurprised, and then I finally vomited on the leather. I sent a brief but detailed email to Orson and then ignored his many calls that came in. On the 5th, he left a voicemail. I'll notify the board then. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's been a real honor seeing that um, being workshopped evolve from the day that you workshopped it to the day that you've perfected it. Um, okay, so up next we have Leanne Lowe. Uh, Leanne Lowe is a young adult, new, new adult fiction writer from Fresno, California, raised by her mom and grandma. 
with a BA in English, Communication and Classics from Fresno Pacific University. Um, she's also Ravenclaw, hashtag Ravenclaw, um, which is kind of cool because I see that Chelsea's kind of out with her time to earn a necklace. Um, <laughs> so let's hear it for Leanne. Okay, so I'm going to be reading an excerpt from my thesis, which is about a young magician named Yeti who accidentally summons Satan. And uh, Satan sticks around to cause some uh, trouble for Yeti, and they end up being summoned to the magician's conclave. Um, It's kind of a magician court, so they're in real trouble, and this is what happens. The closed-door magician's conclave session took place in a boardroom that had walls lined floor to ceiling with panels of wood, stone floors, and a brick fireplace. There shouldn't have been a cohesion to these elements and materials, but somehow, be it the color scheme or the magic in the architecture, the overall effect of the room was a sense of formality that demanded a certain level of decorum. This decorum, however, was lost on Satan, who was slouching in his chair that faced the magician's council, his feet irreverently up on the table, his arms crossed in passive aggression. I was summoned, he sing-songed, his body moving to whatever imaginary music he was always sing-songing to. Yes, Bernadette said, peering sternly down at him over her glasses, and you and the summoner struck a deal, and both ends were held up. So why are you still here? He giggled. That's for me to know, and you to find out. Enough, Ignatius, a tall, skinny, elderly man bellowed. The last time you were here, the last time I was here, Satan interrupted, eyes gleaming a fiery red. The power inside him reared its ancient head and shot a single pulse through the room, rattling the furniture and the windows. I was banned for the deeds of you earthlings. It was magicians who carried out the cleansing for the second time in history. Factually incorrect, sniffed Quentin, one of the younger members, members but yet he heard the lie. Look, Satan, Ignatius started. That, Satan said, his power igniting to burn the air around him, is not my name. Yeti was mesmerized by the near-translucent flames surrounding Satan. He was sitting up now, his full attention on every one of the magicians in front of him. They looked suitably terrified, though they hid it well enough. But each one clearly realized at that exact moment that the shaitan jinn in front of them was a force to be reckoned with, a force that should never and would never be underestimated again. Yeti, though, was too preoccupied with the fire around him. It was beautiful. She wanted to scoop it up in her hands and play with it. Yeti, Raven scolded, get back here. Yeti looked back at her, not even realizing she had gotten up. She sat back down and muttered, sorry. Satan looked back at her, a charmingly smug smile dancing across his lips. What, Bernadette said, is your name then? Satan's smile was slow and dangerous. You don't get to know my name. You magicians have called me Satan, Iblis, Hades, Dagon. He spat out each name. For now, you may call me Samuel Leviathan, the name I will be registering at UCFI with. The silence after that hung heavy, a weight on everyone, particularly Yeti. Why would he go through all of this trouble just to go to school? (laughs) I'm interested, Samil continued, in what you magicians have been doing. Just magicians, Ignatius asked. What about humans and halflings? Satan's eyes gleamed. Of course, I'm interested in humans. Yeti's breath came in small, anxiety-driven bursts. There was something about the way he said humans that told her he meant far more than what everyone in the room thought. If by humans, he continued, you mean all sentient, sapient beings. What do you mean, Bernadette asked suspiciously. When the creator made the world, he explained, he made jinn out of smoke and fire, magicians out of earth, 
angels out of light, and shades out of darkness. Yes, and, Quentin said, rolling his eyes, non-responsives, as you call them, are magicians who are unwilling to work a little harder and longer to master magic. The creator didn't create humans out of mud. He created magicians. So what does human refer to, Yeti asked, forgetting where they were. Samil threw her another charmingly devious smile. It refers to the four sapient creatures of God, which would also refer to halflings, since they are the offspring of the sapient creatures of God. He turned back to the, mag- to the magician's council and slithered over to stand in front of them. How does that feel, to be in the same category of life as me? We aren't, Quentin sputtered. Oh, Samil said quietly, but we are. While the magician's council decided his fate in the back room, Satan hadn't moved from his seat in the front. He stayed in the defendant's seat, his legs up on the desk, his hands behind his neck, scanning the crowd of community representatives with a cocky smirk on his face. The only break in his performance was to get up, winking at Yeti, to sit down next to her and snuggle up to her. The magician's council, after an hour of deliberation, filed back out and took a seat except Bernadette. She remained standing and took out her spectacles from the right pocket of her black robe. We, she read from a piece of paper, have reached a reluctant but unanimous decision. Because Samil has broken no laws and will break no laws by enrolling at UCFI, we must condone his actions. On the counts of breaking the Infernal Names Treaty, Henrietta Diaz has also been found innocent. Yeti almost cried from relief. No jail and no expulsion. Raven wrapped an arm around her and squeezed, but before they could celebrate any further, Bernadette continued. However, there are stipulations for them both. Henrietta, you will need to take extra classes with a trained magician to find a way to force Samil back to his realm. Being the summoner, it has to be you. And because you don't have enough power to force him back, with sheer strength, and on the recommendation of Zola Vivas, we have appointed your mentor to be Raven Vivas. Yeti's head snapped back to Raven. Raven had gone pale, but she lifted her lips shakily into a smile and nodded her head. Good. And Henrietta, said Bernadette, no one can know who Samil is. Moving on. Samil, you may not bring harm to any human. She said the word almost sarcastically, clearly using his definition of the word. You will not bring any of your friends from your realm, and you will have a handler. I don't need a babysitter, Satan hissed, his eyes shifting to obsidian scales, smoke curling out of his hands in thin spirals. Bernadette raised an eyebrow. These terms are non-negotiable. Samil crossed his arms. Who's the lucky bastard? Bernadette pursed her lips. Henrietta Diaz. Samil's eyes shifted back to blue irises, the smoke not so much disappearing as just being sucked back into his hands. He chuckled impishly. Now that I can live with. Once the meeting was adjourned and Yeti and Raven had set up a time to discuss what mentorship might look like, she fled to the nearest exit, only to come face to face with her godforsaken punishment. Not now, Satan. My name's Samil, he grumped. So beyond the capable of anything even close to patience or empathy, or even basic kindness, Yeti growled, and what are you going to do about it? What else could you possibly do? He stiffened before giving his best, aw shucks, smile, even shoving his hands into his pockets and kicking at the doorframe. Come on, Yeti, I know I've been a bit of a pain. A bit, Yeti asked, shoving past him through the door. But now that we're stuck together, Samil said, running up to walk alongside her, let's go celebrate my freedom. Which came, Yeti bit out, at the price of mine. I'm taking classes to try and force you back to your realm. Aren't you even a little worried about it? No, he said, but then added hurriedly, not that I don't have every bit of faith that you can do it, he punched her arm lightly, because I do, but I'm working on a way around it. <laughs> Yeti groaned, I don't want to know, mostly because I'm not in the mood to negotiate. Samil, uh, Samil smirked, 
please, Yeti, please, let's go and eat and celebrate. Do you know how long it's been since I've been allowed to roam Earth? I want to experience everything, starting with the diner, like the one that James Dean was in. No. But you're my handler, he said, pouting like a child. Don't remind me. But that means whether you like it or not, you'll have to learn to spend time with me. Yeti stopped walking. He was right. Okay, fine. Let's get this over with. Satan grabbed her hand, locking his fingers with her. You know, he chatted happily. I'm not as bad as the stories make me out to be. Magicians are so dramatic. And the big guy upstairs just encouraged the melodrama when they wrote down all the sacred texts. But it's no surprise. He personally oversaw the development of Broadway. Let me get this. <laughs> Let me get this straight, Yeti said incredulously. All devils in the world's history of religions are a direct result of you. Satan nodded. Impressive, right? Not the word I would have picked. Yeti wanted to refrain from opening that can of worms, but they needed something to talk about while they walked to Ernie's diner to keep her brain from exploding. He's melodramatic? Satan's eyes lit up. Yeah, totally. I mean, the only reason the end hasn't come yet is because he's not done writing the script. A laugh escaped her. A script? Yep, the last time we thought we had a script was a few hundred years ago, but the only time a script has made it to rehearsal was a total Satan-made explosion sounds and mimed a bomb being dropped and detonated. Disaster, he finished. What happened? The dinosaurs went extinct. He grinned. I missed my cue. This is so good, Samil moaned, his words muffled by the third hamburger he'd stuffed practically whole into his mouth. He snatched the menu from where Yeti had tried to hide it and looked it over. I've always wanted to try pie, too, and cake and spaghetti. Henrietta chuckled. Couldn't help it. He was just so different most of the time, and practically all of the time he was with her, from what the devil usually evoked. Her great-grandmother Florence in Wales had crossed herself, dropping to her knees whenever anyone had even said his name. Even seeing a tiny red man with a pitchfork would probably have been less shocking to Yeti than this adorable hipster with the appetite of a lumberjack. You get to stay, remember, she reminded him. You have time to try everything. What'd you do the last time you were here? The spark of happiness in his eyes dimmed a bit, and yet he was surprised by how worried that made her. Things and stuff, he said, shrugging. If you continue to be more like this, and less like the monster you were when you arrived, I might even cook for you, Yeti said. Samil's eyes lit up again. What do you cook? Random things I've learned over time. My mom taught me how to make pasole and tamales. My family in Japan also taught me how to make sushi. And I can make really good chicken soup. It's great for when you're sick. I probably won't get sick, Satan said. Jin usually don't. I can still have some, though, right? Of course. Being sick isn't necessary for having chicken soup. She let Samil finish his hamburger and ordered him a plate of spaghetti. While they were waiting, Yeti tried thinking of how to phrase her next question. Just ask me, Yeti, Samil said before chugging some cherry coke. I can practically hear your brain going into overdrive from over here. It's just, Yeti started, well, I was just wondering, you know, what's hell like? Samil went still. Um... I don't know. I mean, it's home. And it's not hell, necessarily. Just a dimension that's different from yours. We never really want for anything. I mean, our dimension is a lot like yours, with structures a lot like yours. Lately, though, Jin have become kind of... What? Uh, Samil's nose scrunched up. Stagnant. Unhappy. We don't really know what to do with ourselves, which hasn't really happened before. What do you mean you guys don't do anything? Yeti asked, crossing her arms. The world's a mess. Yeti, Samil said softly, almost gently... I know my reputation, and I definitely earned it, but I was not lying back there in the courtroom. And not all Jin are like me. Most aren't. The state of your dimension? That's all you guys. But all of us at our core are humans. Yeti took a moment to, care, to take everything in. 
This was so depressing. The divides of magical and non-magical cultures and the divides within those cultures were actually unnecessary byproducts of unnecessary categorizations. She wondered what would happen if the categorizations changed. If people were categorized instead of non-responsive humans as low-level magicians or something like that, would it make a difference? Unless Samuel was lying. Satan would lie, right? Even hipster Satan. <laughs> what about you? He got out before moaning again. This spaghetti is amazing. What do you mean? What about me? What are you doing with your life? He slurped up his noodles. Why? Who do you love? Why? What have you done? Why? Henrietta laughed again, saving the rest of her contemplations about the nature of humanity for later. I'm majoring in zoology and cryptozoology. I want to be a vet for magical and non-magical creatures. I love my friends and family. What else? Um, I traveled the world for three years. Samil nodded. I know. Why? To learn about my family? Why? Because my family has a secret nobody remembers? Why? Because my family is scattered around the world. Why? For protection during the cleansing and the shadowing. The first ones. Why? Yeti rolled her eyes. Just shut up, she muttered. Samil grinned and clapped his hands, both at having annoyed Yeti and for the ice cream sundae that Lola, their waitress, had placed in front of him. How'd you end up at UCFI? I've always wanted to go there. Yeah, but your trip was originally supposed to be for five years. How'd, and you cut it short. Why? I'm the first family member in a while to travel to all five clans. I saw similarities in health issues and some differences in takes on the family secret. And? And I figured I should go to school and learn more about magic so I can help solve it. And? And what? Yeti asked, patience wearing thin. Jesus. Just shut up, Henrietta snapped. She could feel heat flooding her cheeks. Just shut up, you son of a... Actually, Satan said conversationally, I'm no one's son. I was created. An original jinn. Though I guess if I had to claim parentage, it would be Miracle Man. How do you even know about him? Miracle Man? Oh, well, honey, read your Bible. Though I guess you have several to... Jesus, Yeti said through gritted teeth. I know he broke your heart. Yeah, I guess he did. Yeti could still feel the stinging pain of failed young love. She, were, she was surprised that it still stung, though she was glad that the pain wasn't as all-consuming as it had been when she'd run to her grandparents' home in Mexico to tell her family that her boyfriend had married his fiancé. Do you regret it? Being with him? Kind of, but it was a good lesson. No, Satan said. What you did after you found out. Henrietta's eyes widened. You know about that, too? Satan nodded, waiting for her to confess. Okay, Yeti sighed. I tattooed, lying, cheating bastard on his ass. She paused, searching within herself for some remorse. She found none. It's magical. It'll only ever show up if he cheats again, she said. Satan, at least, had the decency to not look smug. But then he surprised her. Don't worry, sweetheart, he drawled. The bastard deserved worse. Yet he stared at him, stunned beyond all reason. What, you don't agree? Okay, that's fine, Satan said, continuing to eat a sundae. But should you ever agree with me, he said, his mouth full of ice cream. Just tell me, and I'll finish him off for you. Yeti felt a laugh start to bubble up, and before she knew it, she was in hysterics, her eyes watering. What's so funny, Satan demanded. Nothing, it's just, you care. She was weirdly touched by the idea. Satan stabbed the cherry out of his glass with a fork. No, he retorted, chewing aggressively. I don't. Liar, she whispered. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leanne. I feel like there's no better way to celebrate Easter weekend than hearing a story about lovable Satan. Um, 
Oh, also, just, just reminding everyone that there are refreshments right here if anyone wants to, to partake. Um, okay, so up next, our final reader is Eric Alessandro Mondrian. Is a writer, artist, and scholar who makes work about place, belonging, love, longing, and madness. He holds an MA in Mass Communication and Media Studies from San Diego State University, focusing on virtual worlds as new media, and will be graduating this year from CalArts with an interschool MFA in voice arts and creative writing, and a supplemental concentration in integrated media. He lives wherever the dreams take him. <laughs> Let's hear it for Eric. <laughs> Thank you all uh, for coming out tonight. I have a few different pieces actually to read. Um, the first one, uh, so the first four of them will actually be in the anthology, the Next Words anthology that, uh, Amanda, when is that actually coming out? Uh, It'll be a for sale at the Red Cat Re soon, soon. Okay. Um, but the first few are in the anthology. Um, and then there are a couple others that are not. But the uh, the first piece actually is called Home, uh, and it actually came about from a class with Tisa Bryant uh, a few years ago, and uh, invest on hybrid forms and investigating the question of where do you come from. So this is the first piece from the anthology called Home. Okay. In a bad place. They gave me a map, all cookie-cutter shapes that fit together like a poorly designed jigsaw puzzle, and demanded that I show them where I lived. Where was home, they wanted to know, as if that were actually a question you could ask someone without irony. Curious despite the circumstances, I wondered aloud whether the map was to scale. One of them nodded and said that it was. Though it was really the other way around, he added sagely. Before I could figure out exactly what he meant, they handed me a purple felt-tip pen, extra fine, and told me to mark with a circle the place from which I had come. And then they waited. Objects on paper are less solid than they appear. While the process of elimination can work wonders as a strategy to get to where you want to go, if you're not careful, sometimes you end up with a whole lot more of nothing than you intended. I found the territories that bordered mine, traced the lines that fit the limits I had always been told were there, but try as I might, I couldn't find home. It was right there. I had my finger on it. It was the right texture, but instead of the comforting and the familiar, all I saw were drawings of sea monsters and mutants and space aliens, hydras with a thousand heads and little green men with almond eyes that were too big for their technicolor faces. Terra fucking incognita. It's not there, I told them, wondering if they'd believe me, wondering if they were the kind of people who had ever gotten lost on their way to a party, only to realize that, Surprise, you were the host and you had forgotten to send out the invitations. Maybe if I tried erasing the edges one by one, then things would start to make enough sense to satisfy them, though I doubted it. 1002. It wasn't always this way. Nothing ever is. Once upon a time, as the story goes, I had solid ground to stand on. Once upon a time, there was a castle and a kingdom and people who knew what to do when you said that the sky was falling or that the river was running red with the blood of a thousand inkwells and would soon dry up or that the shadows were racing aimlessly through the dark and please won't you help me catch one and ask it where it belongs. Once upon a time, you could tell an epic tale without worrying that you didn't have a nice happy ending or that your beginning was pretty feeble as beginnings go. As long as you had a good middle, something that people could really sink their teeth into, then you'd be fine. Once upon a time, time had the courtesy to let you dream once in a while, and it knew enough to not interrupt just to remind you that where you were wasn't where you'd been. 
Once upon a time, I didn't need a map to tell me to turn left. Home would still be there, waiting. Uh, the next few pieces, the uh, three pieces, are actually based on um, a project by a writer from Canada named Julie Wilson, who has a project called Scene Reading, a blog and a book project, basically that involved um, her mainly on public transit in Toronto, uh, observing people reading in public, whether it was on public transit or in a cafe or a bookstore like this, taking note of some kind of detail about the person reading and trying as surreptitiously as she could to um, find out what they were reading and maybe where in the book they were, what page. Um, and then she would go home and she would write uh, some kind of story, a very short, like short story, flash fiction, uh, based on some kind of detail about that encounter. Um, just that responded in some way to the person, to what they were reading, or something about how she felt in that encounter. So these three pieces, um, the first is called Love. Chicken Little sits and waits and listens for a word. She'll know it by the way you speak. She will know by what she heard. And if she does not need you now, well, stick around and you'll see. There's always time for wanting more. So maybe later. I've waited long enough, and then she'll look you in the eye. You're mine, or I'm yours, or that's just what I thought would happen. This isn't what I expected at all. How could I be so stupid? But there she sits. She sits and waits, and waits, and waits, and waits some more, all the same. Purgatory. A long line of people waiting to be seen to be judged, he thought, and wondered yet again whether he ought to leave before they called his number. He could tell the man at the desk that it was all a mistake, that he'd come here by accident, a misunderstanding and nothing more. Anyway, he had somewhere else to be. Didn't everyone? If he left now, of course, then he would never know. But did he really want to? It was a question he'd asked himself countless times, and he still didn't have a good answer. He glanced around, secretly trying to get a better sense of the competition. Unfortunately, there was no way to tell who here would pass and who would fail. You left by another door. There would be no opportunities to uh, watch as someone made their exit and attempt to glean from their expression whether they had made it through. No fleeting moments during which the crowd could desperately try to determine what was so special about that person. No standards to which you could compare yourself. No chance to figure out if you measured up. It was unlikely that he'd ever even see any of these people again. The numbers ticked up steadily, growing higher and more foreboding as the line of hopefuls oozed slowly onward. Sneaking a look over his shoulder, he saw the man at the desk staring back at him, one eyebrow arching up and a smile on the man's lips. He wasn't sure what that meant. Next, the front of the line much sooner than he had expected. And this was it, he realized. The abrupt denouement of another earnest crusade, a transient pause during which he would find out whether it had all been worth it, whether all those years of struggle and industrious hardship would finally bear fruit. It could only ever have come to this, and there was nothing more to do now but step forward and discover where this long, circuitous path had led him. He hesitated, but no matter. He already knew. Stray. I am the king of the people who wander the night. Here I sit on a red velvet throne of awkward silence and empty sound, forever brushing away the crumbs of their twilight indulgences until at last I may be free of their guilt, absolved if only for a moment of their agonizing joy. 
From my perch, I watch them, heads down, eyes up, predatory monsters of the early hours who know nothing of the time before and who want nothing of tomorrow. I rule a bitter and unseemly skill over shadows. If even a one had anything of substance, I would think my place quite tolerable. Instead, I am left with specters, extolled by ephemera who choke me with their need and overwhelm me with the desperation of their childlike wanderings. I can anticipate no end to this sullen state of affairs. Bound as I am to these naive and benighted creatures by a foolish concern for their well-being, I can imagine no one else to mind them on my behalf. Perhaps I am simply too proud to abdicate my rank, but I fear as well that no other nation would have me. In truth, it might be best this way. For as long as I have reigned in these darkest of Edens, the skies above have seen fit to reflect my mood. I recognize myself in the anguish of the storm and in the melancholy of the silent, enduring gloom. This world and I are as one. And then two more pieces. This piece is actually, as Amanda said, my uh, master's is in virtual worlds and media studies, uh, or focusing on virtual worlds. Uh, this is actually a piece that a uh, Torontonian painter um, and 3D installation artist made in the virtual world of Second Life. Uh, just a brief ekphrastic piece uh, about a specific installation that she had recently. Um, a derelict apartment building perched precariously in a barren and shattered landscape. Here and there lie empty promises, consumerist visions of a utopian future where people have abandoned the world and left it to its inevitable decline while their bodies are safely sequestered within their own private ruins. No one remains but a few children, among them a girl holding a small suitcase and what looks to be the severed hand of a mannequin. Clinging malevolently to the apartment building's exterior are two strangely shaped robots, the mutated spawn of a movie camera and a gigantic spider. Through the windows, they shine advertisements from yesteryear directly onto the walls of unsuspecting apartments, advertisements that no tenant will ever see. One sells a shelter ball, an explosively spur-of-the-moment escape from nuclear bombardment, the other an escape for parents from the inconvenient questions of their overly curious children. It seems they've already gotten their wish. And then the final piece is actually um, a piece that I wrote in Douglas Kearney is here or was here? There you go. Um, in a poetry class that he I took with him uh, last spring where we were investigating uh, formal constraints within poetry. Um, and as most of you or some of you know here, uh, there was a member of our class, um, unfortunately, who passed away at the end of spring named Emily Ann Kuriyama. Uh, I had the honor of being in the same class with her. Uh, and as one of the assignments in the class, we had to intervene in poetic form and some way. So um, I'm going to briefly read the instructions for a form that uh, she created during this class, um, and then I'll read the poem that I wrote at that time based on her instructions for this form that she came up with. Um, and it's uh, a d she mixed data prosody with a chant form. So she wrote uh, data prosody, meaning principles of randomness, chant a repetitive liturgical song intoned on one note. So her instructions for the form were as follows. Take a found text or text that you've written and cut out each word separately. Mix the cutouts and draw two to five words. This will be the repetitious aspect of your chant. Complete each line as you see fit. Feel free to complete each line by drawing more cutouts. 
and then repeat this process as often as you'd like to change the repeated phrase. Feel free to keep drawing if you're not satisfied with the words or phrases you're getting. And of course, if you don't have scissors, etc., use an online text randomizer, which is what I did, or shuffler, or close your eyes and circle paper with the pen. So those are Emmy's uh, instructions for the dotted prosody chant. Um, and I'd like to read this um, poem that... Uh, uses uh, Calvin and Hobbes' book called The Revenge of the Baby Sat by Bill Watterson, uses per- in particular the um, series of panels that told the story of when Calvin first met his babysitter that he loves to hate, Rosalind, and decides to um, steal her, her class notes for a f- uh, exam that she has coming up the next day. So he steals them, runs to the bathroom with Hobbes, locks them in there, and threatens to flush her notes uh, down the toilet if she doesn't comply with his demands. And if you know Calvin and Hobbes, then you know um, probably what, what is coming, but, or exact how it played out. But so this is the source text, and then using Emmy's instructions for the Dada Prosody chant. Um, this is as follows. You again think memorized away Calvin, the there gotten gross. You again. Think memorized away? Come? For notes, would any think? You again. Think memorized away? Look, no notes. Notes, boy, like we going. You again. Think memorized away? Tonight, the this for your and calling too. Then, your make you quiet by that Roz. You, you? Did have where right? Then your make you quiet by that Roz. You're to run, we that and peep. Truck, really you, I, us, your humble babysitter? Wouldn't Hobbs? Truck, really you, I, us, your flush door? Revenge. <laughs> Truck, really you, I, us around? I, you, they, them right. High spend dinner reasonable. Easy shower, can you? High spend dinner one, really, we done. High spend dinner, you'd notes. Your in give video. High spend dinner home one, what find means. Won't Rosalind, we open our come hiding. Won't Rosalind, this any upstairs. Rosalind? We've wood conversation, I'm Calvin. We've wood conversation these promises with. Torpedo fooey. Don't. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. I feel like your writing really expresses the, um, or captures the true nature of our program, which kind of encourages experimentation with and, and play with different genres. Um, thank you also for acknowledging Emmy, um, who our anthology is dedicated to. Uh, yeah, so that kind of concludes our series tonight, um, or at least one, one event that's part of our series. The next one is on the 22nd. It's at um, Visitor Welcome Center in Koreatown um, at for at 5 p.m. Sorry about that. And the last one is, the big one, is May 7th at Red Cat at 4 p.m. Thank you again to faculty, um, fellow students, and everyone who showed up to support us. We really, really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. 
and we hope to see you soon.